Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. How sweet to be an idiot As harmless as a cloud Too small to hide the sun Almost poking fun At the warm but insecure untidy crowd How sweet All right. That's Neil Innes, by the way. Does anybody remember the Bonzo Dog Band? I feel like I'm probably the last person who does. Uh, that's not the point, however. The point is Andy Barowitz, uh, who, after many great successes in television and places like that, um, became one of America's preeminent humor writers, and particularly uh, writers of political humor. That has never stopped since it started. He writes the Borowitz Report for The New Yorker. He's here today to talk about his new book, Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber. I believe today is the official publication date. <laughs> Nonetheless, the book has already gone into its second printing. I believe it's won a Pulitzer and a National Book Award just today, just since the official. So this, from a certain perspective, this interview is unnecessary at this point. Uh, but nonetheless, we want to do it because we like Andy Barowitz and we're excited about this. So Andy, you've been on with us before. And so welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm psyched. So um, this is a different kind of book from and a different kind of writing than what people normally expect from you. They expect uh, those very pithy uh, New Yorker pieces that are usually uh, they, they take the reality and then kind of twist the premise around and invert them. And then you kind of write in a very straight faced way as if what you're describing was actually the case. This is really a lot closer to political commentary. That's funny, right? You're, you're, you're out on a different limb, it seems. It is really a new thing for me. It's I would call it a uh, a funny history book. Is really what it is because everything in it is true, unfortunately. Uh, but I didn't really make anything up. You know, people when they heard I was doing a book, they were saying, "Ah, is it going to be like the Borowitz Report? Is it just going to be your fake headlines?" They said in a somewhat contemptuous way. <laughs> and um, actually, two hundred fifty pages of that would get pretty tedious. I think um, this is. A new kind of thing for me, what I did is I looked at the last 50 years of American history, and I wanted to ask a very simple forensic question, which is, what did our politicians know? Did they know enough to govern the country? And in many cases, the answer I came up with was not encouraging. However, funny, <laughs> because they did some very, very dumb things and said some very dumb things. Uh, but also sad because we're all living with the consequences. So one review that uh, came out that I really liked, the guy said that the book makes you laugh, cry, and swear all at the same time. So mission accomplished. <laughs> right. And lose control of your bowels as well. So um, I don't know about that. Okay. We'll see. So yeah, so to, to, to take a page from Watergate, it's about what didn't they know and when didn't they know it. Um, <laughs> and, and there's sort of a way in which 
you know, we can almost stick a pin in the last time you could kind of be disqualified or lose or be badly politically injured for either by appearing stupid or ignorant or bad on your feet. I mean, 76 Jerry Ford does that gaffe in the debate where he says there's no Soviet domination of Europe. Um, you know, in 80, Ted Kennedy gets asked by Roger Mudd why he wants to be president. And he kind of goes, humana, 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 humana. He doesn't really have an answer to that. You know, and those were real problems at that time. They might not have been disqualifiers, but they were gigantic problems for each of those politicians. And that's sort of where you begin. You're, you've divided the, this epoch into three sub-epochs, uh, starting with ridicule and, and then acceptance and then celebration. But in the ridicule period, you could really mess up your political reputation if you came off as stupid. Just say a little bit more about that. Well, I went into the research for this book without a lot of preconceived notions. I had a general sense, based on our current environment, that our politicians have gotten dumber. And when I use the word dumb, I wanna make it clear, I'm not talking about mental capacity. I am not a neurologist. I am not capable of making those kinds of assessments. I'm talking about how much do they know? What do they uh, absorb? What information do they have at their command? So in the ridicule stage, which is the first stage of these three stages of ignorance I talk about in the book, our dumb politicians had to pretend to be smart because in those days, as you pointed out, it was still important for us as voters to have politicians who knew things. Now that seems like a very basic concept, but really if you look at where we are now, the notion of voters really caring whether politicians knew things like geography, math, the English language, things like that, it's like, taking a trip to Colonial Williamsburg. It's just a really different era. So <laughs> I, I pinpointed the beginning of this whole trend. And like any history book, it's a little bit arbitrary. But I pinpointed 1966, because that was the year that Ronald Reagan ran for governor of California. And Reagan was a product of the TV age. I'm sorry, I just somebody just pinged me and I got to turn that off. That was very ignorant of me, actually. <laughs> not to, um, You're in a no-ping zone right now. Exactly. So, um, so Ron, um, Ronald Reagan was a product of the TV age. And what really happened was in 1960, we had the first televised debate between two presidential candidates. It was John F. Kennedy, of course, and Richard Nixon. And one of the lessons of that debate was that it was really important to be good on TV because both of those guys were well-informed. In fact, people who listened to that debate on the radio thought that Nixon won, but those who watched on TV thought he got his clock cleaned. And the reason why was because John F. Kennedy had great hair. He was really handsome. He had a lot of, you know, screen presence. And, um, you know, you looked at Nixon, he was like sweaty and unshaven and he looked untrustworthy. Actually, in this case, TV <laughs> told the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but what it said to people, especially in the Republican Party, was if we want to get a guy in the governor's seat in California, in the governor's mansion, we need somebody who's really good on TV. So they sort of reversed engineered things. They didn't go out and find a politician who was smart and knew a lot and tried to train him at being good in television. 
they tried to find somebody who was really good on TV and load him full of enough facts so that he wouldn't embarrass himself and he could seem plausible as a governor. And that guy was Ronald Reagan, who had incredible experience on television. He had hosted the General Electric Theater for CBS and then Death Valley Days, who sort of playing out the string. Um, and he really didn't have much going on, but he was really good at TV, knew very, very little, but they hired some guys from UCLA who were psychologists who basically did sort of a whole clockwork orange trip on Reagan. They just loaded him full of information. And the good news was Reagan from his previous occupation was really good at memorizing stuff because he'd had to memorize stuff to be an actor on, on, in movies in Hollywood. So mission accomplished. He was very ignorant, but he didn't seem ignorant on television. And he won that election by a million votes, which was just absolutely astounding. Right. As things went along, I mean, I think that that whole question, was he smart, was he stupid, got more and more pressing during his presidency. Uh, I'm sure you remember as well as I do, one of the most brilliant comedy routines I've ever seen on SNL with Phil Hartman playing Reagan uh, and he's in the White House and he's meeting Girl Scouts and stuff like that and he's got that little heady, head bobby thing and, and he's just <laughs> saying these kind of empty platitudes and then suddenly he, you know, everybody has to be chased out of the room and he's picking up the phone and he's speaking in Farsi to somebody in Iran and he's barking out all these orders you know and it turns out he's, yeah. been, he's been concealing this ferocious intellect uh, that yes, he has. He if, if only I mean one of the ironies of that brilliant sketch is that, you know, since Reagan was president, there's been this very, very extensive movement in the Republican Party to reinvent Ronald Reagan. And I actually read a book that I talk about in my book that was hilariously titled Ronald Reagan, an intellectual biography. And I mean, they make Ronald Reagan sound like Jean-Jacques Rousseau or something. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. Just, just so that the listeners don't think I'm just defaming a guy and de de denigrating him without any evidence, the book has plenty of evidence of just how ignorant Reagan was. And Reagan did not know, and this is when he was president, he didn't know that South America was composed of different countries. That's what he discovered on his first trip to South America. He couldn't divide 45 by nine. He thought that all the nuclear waste produced by a nuclear power plant in a year could be stored under a desk. And here's, I think, the, the most telling fact, which is that recently, I don't know if you've been following the political campaign of Herschel Walker. Oh, yes. Um, but Herschel Walker has been, I think, unfairly ridiculed for saying that we have too many trees and trees cause pollution and stuff like that. Reagan thought the exact same thing. He said that, that trees produce way more pollution than cars do. And uh, he was a very anti-tree anti guy. And the one thing I would say about those two gentlemen is that they're equally ignorant, except that Herschel Walker was much better at football because Ronald Reagan, we thought was good at football because he was in the movie Newt Rockney, All-American, but he actually was a terrible football player in, in real life. He tried out for his college football team and he had no ability. And that in a nutshell is Ronald Reagan. Mm. The real Ronald Reagan, there was very little there there, but he was, once you put him up on the screen, he was very, very convincing as a completely competent, 
sentient human being. One of the memories that you're stirring up in me, Andy, is that uh, Jim Brady was, uh, during the 1980 campaign, he'd been working as a press secretary for George H.W. Bush, who was Reagan's opponent in the primary. Uh, and as a result of the thing that you're just talking about, there was a moment where they were flying over a forest fire in the campaign flame uh, campaign uh, plane, and he started yelling, killer trees, killer trees. Uh, in a way, <laughs> and it was sort of uh, widely repeated. Uh, I'm sure it got back to Reagan, although ultimately, as we know, he wound up working for Reagan and getting shot by John Hinckley. So um, I'm not exactly sure what that proves. But, uh, you know, just because we're on this and because of the Phil Hartman thing, I'm just going to just temporarily do a quick leapfrog into the third section celebration because there's a way in which – and you mentioned this. There's a way in which, okay, the premise of the Phil Hartman sketch was they didn't want anybody to know how smart Reagan is because uh, obviously so much more approachable and accessible if he's not that much smarter than you are. Um, you know, that's become kind of a standard operating procedure. You talk about Ralph DeSantis not wanting to be outdunced by other politicians. There's a way in which people like him, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, they seem at pains to con- – they don't want to be identified as people who went to Ivy League schools. I guess we could throw in Stuart Rhodes from the Oath Keepers who went to Yale Law School too, right? There's a way in which – yeah, J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance. Right, J.D. Vance. So there's a way in which maybe that's – that's really become a standard operating point, right? That you don't want to seem like an intellectual. Yeah, I mean, we we will get to that in our in our lovely trip down the three stages of ignorance. But the the celebration phase is the phase we're in right now, which is it's a complete upside down Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll version of the ridicule phase. We're in the ridicule phase, as we've discussed. A dumb politician like Reagan had to pretend to be smart. Now you have all these Ivy League guys. And when you when you say to somebody that Ron DeSantis went to an Ivy League school, a lot of people are shocked to hear that because, of course, in Florida, he's doing things like appointing a surgeon general who says that horse medicine is great for your coronavirus. So he doesn't seem like an educated man. And that's very much by design because now with the rise of ignorance in America as kind of coin of the realm in politics, it's actually much better to seem ignorant than to seem like an expert. You know, the the people who say fire Fauci do not want a governor who's going to quote a lot of, you know, articles from the Lancet. They want a guy who's going to say, (laughs) yeah, you've got to try horse medicine. I mean, that surgeon general, can you imagine being his patient i mean like if you like break your leg would he have you put down i just don't know what what his whole approach is to medicine and it's it's really dangerous if you live in florida and you think that the surgeon general and the governor have your best interests at heart and also if you believe that they know something you're going to be taking horse medicine which is not a good idea unless you were a horse yeah, although there are, I mean, obviously, uh, Trump famously talked about bleach. Uh, and I feel like Ron Johnson is being overlooked here, a senator from uh, Wisconsin, who um, advocated mouth- I mean, he, mouthwash. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, I mean, he, he said he's been a little skeptical about vaccines, but like Listerine, which rhymes with vaccine, he thinks uh, <laughs> is pretty good. Mouthwash probably uh, helped uh, knock out that COVID-19 for you. That's what he said. He he's said that, you know, Listerine, gargling with Listerine would kill coronavirus. And I felt so bad for the makers of Listerine who had to then come out 
with a disclaimer saying, no, Listerine is simply to be used to give your mouth a minty, fresh taste. It's not, it will not cure COVID-19. I mean, that's the thing that kept on happening. You know, in the old days, and now I'm really showing my age, politicians were generally expected to say things like, um, you know, there's a, there's a flood coming, you know, seek higher ground. They would say things to advance the public safety. Now politicians in the celebration phase of ignorance have actually become a menace to public safety. So, so it's left to sort of corporate America to say, no, 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 don't use Listerine to cure your coronavirus. And I don't know about you, Colin, but the idea that corporate America is now the safeguard of American lives, I, that makes me very queasy. They're only worried about lawsuits. They're, they're not out there safeguarding us. They just don't want people suing them because they use, right. they use Listerine and then they got COVID anyway. All right. We didn't need to, in the interest of time, kind of move forward here. So we got ridicule. Now we move into a time of acceptance. Uh, and one of the people, I think, who kind of straddles that time and really ultimately benefits probably from it uh, is uh, George W. Bush. Uh, let's hear him. Cat, this is A2. Let's hear him at the 2001 Radio and Television Correspondents' Dinner. And how about this for foreign policy vision? When I was coming up, it was a dangerous world. And we knew exactly who the they were. <laughs> It was us versus them. And it was clear who the them was. Today, we're not so sure who the they are, but we know they're there. So he kind of winds up, he takes this label that's been put on him, his own family jokes about him that way, too. Uh, and, and he wears it with a certain amount of pride. You talk about the commencement address where he said to all of you who got honors, congratulations to all of those who, who got C's. You could be the president of the United States someday. Um, you know, it really becomes kind of an affectionate joke about him. I remember right around this time, he'd left the uh, the office of governor of Texas to run for president. And Kinky Friedman uh, ran a campaign for governor of Texas. And his slogan was, how hard could it be? Um, so, but so Bush takes this. It's he does a little bit of jujitsu with this, right? He takes it, he takes a weakness, and he flips it over and makes it an advantage. Yeah. Well, what happened was he was um, he was living in the aftermath of the Dan Quayle disaster, which is the Dan Quayle from the ridicule stage was sort of the anti-Reagan, and that he was absolutely as ignorant as Reagan, but he had no talent for hiding it. Terrible on TV couldn't memorize stuff. He was just awful. And interestingly, Reagan and Quayle both had the same tutor, this guy named Stu Spencer, who was in charge of remaking both of them. And he failed miserably with Quayle. Now, Bush and Quayle are very similar in terms of how little they knew. And in, in matter of fact, I have a little quiz in the book called Bush or Quayle, where you have to see if you can tell which is which. And the fact of the matter is they're they're both really on the same vector when it comes to how little they knew. But Bush really caught a break because what happened was very early in his candidacy in 2000, he was on a Boston radio show and a host named Andy Hiller decided that he would ambush Bush. And he did it by asking him the names of some foreign leaders. And he asked him the names like, who is the leader of Pakistan? And went down this list of four leaders and Bush only got one out of four rights. And 
again, in the ridicule stage, that would have been a disqualification. Like just as Jerry Ford said, you know, there's no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. Not knowing who's running these countries when you're a guy who's saying, I'm about to become commander in chief was a real problem. But his campaign was ingenious because his press secretary, uh, Karen Hughes, got out there and said, he's running for president of the United States, not Jeopardy contestant. And she really managed to flip it so that being ignorant actually made him more approachable and more like you, more the guy that you want to have a beer with. And that became that famous poll question, who would you rather have a beer with? And he beat Al Gore in that contest without the help of the Supreme Court in that one instance. So it was really a very ingenious pivot. And it ushered in this acceptance phase where, yeah, saying that you didn't know things was not disqualifying. It was in a way a badge of honor because he was saying, hey, I'm not some pointy headed intellectual. I'm just like you. And that became a positive thing. I always thought that beer question was weird because Bush was a recovering alcoholic. Maybe people thought <laughs> they that they, they could get two beers. They could have his beer too because he wouldn't drink. But um, well, you know, Colin, one thing I discovered when I was doing my research is that you know we've all at least I was under the misimpression that that beer quiz was like something that Gallup or Harris did. That it was like some official, you know, storied age old polled question. It wasn't. It was a question that was devised in two thousand by the marketing department of Sam Adams Beer. It was strictly a marketing gimmick. And it's now become really a, pa a part of the American political lexicon. We don't ask, who do you think knows the names of more foreign leaders? It's like, who would you like to knock a few back with? And that has become, that's part of the whole problem we have, which is that there's this media reinforcement of dumb questions like that, which emphasize the wrong things. Now, there's there's also, though, we got just one more thing and we'll go to a break. But um, there's a way in which I, I think the Democrats made a mistake of not reading this very well. And, and right. Right, right around the same time, uh, the first debate between Bush and Gore, Gore kind of famously audibly sighed during Bush's answers and with his body language also suggested, you know, he was on stage with the dumb kid in class. He was the smart <laughs> kid in class and he was it was laborious and tedious for him to listen to the dumb kid struggle through his answers. And, and that really didn't, I mean, one of the things that the Democrats have had a hard time understanding, I'm a Democrats since the 1980s. But one thing that they've had a hard time understanding is people vote for people they like. They rarely vote for people they don't like. Um, and so, and there's something unlikable about being impatient with the dumb kid, right? Yeah. I mean, Al Gore did not get the memo. And what's amazing about that is that he was vice president for eight years under Bill Clinton, who definitely got the memo. Bill Clinton when he first ran for president, there was a lot of concern about him being yet another kind of egghead Democrat because he was a, a graduate of Oxford University and Yale Law School. He had all these kind of red flags for an anti-intellectual culture. Bill Clinton kind of had some things that he had to deal with. And the way Bill Clinton did that was he started doing Elvis imitations. I mean, he would do Elvis imitations at the drop of the hat. He did it on Charlie Rose. And then, of course, he most famously appeared on Arsenio wearing Ray-Bans and playing Heartbreak Hotel on a saxophone. So it was like, oh, he's not so bad. He can also do really stupid things. <laughs> so we, we like him now because he's, he's just kind of a clown. And Al Gore could have looked at that and said, 
oh, I see, you have to kind of make these accommodations to our culture, to our pop culture. And I may not be crazy about the fact that we live in an anti-intellectual country, but that is the fact. And so I have to accommodate myself somehow to that. Right. Um, I think the the difference between uh, uh, Gore and Clinton also was... I mean, I think Clinton's uh, supremacy, the, the, what you're describing, can also be summed up in that moment in the town hall debate where a woman was describing some kind of heartbreaking situation. This is the town hall debate where Bush 41 was famously looking at his watch while, while people were talking, uh, flunking the body language t- test. And that's when Clinton said, I feel your pain. And people made fun of him for that, but it was a great thing to say. I mean, he could have said, I'm aware of a program that they use in Chile right now that could address <laughs> your problems. And, and the problem, and he would have known about it. He was that smart. And so was Gore. The problem is Gore would have said that. He would have said, oh, you should, this, there's this thing in Denmark that might help you right, right now. I mean, I mean, yes, it really comes down to one word, Colin, which is talent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a talented politician knows, knows how to read the room. The irony is Bill Clinton was a brilliant student. He yes. was a wonk. He was a nerd. He could as you said, yeah, he would know everything about every country, every welfare program in Indonesia, but he was smart enough not to show off. Interestingly, Al Gore was not a good student. He was like a C student. He was, his grades were no better than George W. Bush's, but he felt the need for some reason to project this very intellectual image, even though, as I show in the book, the Democrats had tried that since the 1950s with Adlai Stevenson. They'd gone to that well again and again and again. They'd put up these guys who were quote unquote eggheads, which was a term that first was used to apply to Stevenson. And then it was, you know, Mike Dukakis and they just, George McGovern, they kept on nominating college professors for some (laughs) reason. And all of these guys had a real weakness for sounding smart. Now, I personally, as an elitist, love that. I love Elizabeth Warren. I love when she says, I've got a plan for that. And then she goes on and on. It's clear she's done her homework. But unfortunately, we live in a culture that doesn't value that. And so if you're going to get into the White House and do all these great things and have all these great plans, you can be wonky as all get out behind closed doors. But your, your physical, you know, what you're projecting to the electorate when you're running has got to be, some might say, dumbed down. I like to say simplified um, and, and, and relatable. And I think that, again, comes back to talent. Clinton had that. He was great at getting elected, although in unusual circumstances because he never got a majority. There was that guy, Ross Perot, who kept on running and he, he won with a plurality each time. But he was a very brilliant politician, very good at reading the room I just wish he had used his talent to be a better president, which I don't think he was. Right. we got to go to a break here. I mean, one name that you didn't mention, yeah, Gore didn't pick up too many tricks in in eight years of being with Clinton. Of course, neither did the woman who was sharing his life. I mean, Hillary Clinton essentially ran as Tracy Flick, not understanding that people who watch that movie don't like Tracy Flick. Uh, They don't like the person who raises their hand to tell the teacher that she forgot to assign homework for tomorrow. Uh, All right. we got to go to a break. We'll come back with Andy Borowitz. Uh, His new book is Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber.
We are back with Andy Borowitz, uh, writes the Borowitz Report for The New Yorker, uh, here today to talk about his new book, Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber. So uh, let's jump ahead to where we are now, which is the time of celebration. Uh, you are celebrated for believing wacky, improbable, ill-informed things. Oh, I, I did want to just share one other Texas. Re- I'm not from Texas, but a little Texas-related story for you. <laughs> goes back, from I think, to about somewhere around the 1990s when Jim Hightower was the famously acerbic uh, and funny uh, commissioner of agriculture in Texas, and he was informed that the Bill Clement, then the governor of Texas, was studying Spanish. And Hightower said, good, then he'll be by ignorant. Um, so um, so here we are now. We're in the era of Gosar and Go- Gomert and Gatz. And those are just the Gs. Oh, and Marjorie Taylor Jean, uh, Green and, and Lauren Boebert. And, and, you know, and I, I, I want to just turn back, turn back to you as a humorist and say, I mean, we've, we've kind of arrived at a point. I wonder if we're at a tipping point for you. At one moment, they were making it easy for you by doing dumb, crazy, weird things. But, you know, the next moment, I don't know, where's there to go from Jewish space lasers? You know, there, if you're a humorist, like one of your recent headlines was Lauren Boebert claims 19th Amendment does not exist because God gave Moses only 10 amendments. I don't find that completely implausible. <laughs> neither, did, neither did many people on the Internet, Colin, <laughs> I must say. I was not trying to hoax anyone, but there was an awful lot of discussion on Twitter about how on earth she could be that dumb. Um, And the answer is she is that dumb. It's just she didn't say that particular thing. But you really um, pinpointed an issue, a problem that I have as a humorist. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to write a nonfiction book, actually, which was that when Donald Trump was elected, everybody who knew me would say, oh my gosh, this is your lucky day. The jokes are going to write themselves. And actually the the opposite was the case because the whole job of writing fake news, which is what I do, is that you take the real news and try to make it more ridiculous. And with somebody like Donald Trump, that was impossible because I would like, you know, rack my brain trying to come up with something insane that he might do or say. And then 10 minutes later, he would do or say that thing. So my news wasn't fake. It was just kind of early. I mean, it's just, I was there like 10 minutes before he was, but that is the problem. It's a problem that we have now with this clown car. It's been a problem. I mean, we, we talk about these characters, but I would say even at the end of what I arbitrarily call the acceptance phase, like in 2012, I mean, I don't know if you remember some of those debates when you had Herman Cain and Michelle Bachman and Rick Perry, who couldn't remember the three things that was on a list that he actually wrote himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Lauren Boebert, to her credit, did not know what the 19th Amendment was, but Rick Perry came out and said, there are three government agencies I would eliminate. And he couldn't remember one out of those three, even though he had come up with the list. So, I mean... Let's be fair to to Ms. Bobert. Um, she's 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 got some good qualities. Right. She keeps, I think, everybody in Congress alert by setting off that metal detector every time she walks in. That's a public service in a way. Uh, but no, I mean it's it's actually not great for comedy um, when you have people talking about Jewish space lasers and 
and horse medicine. I mean, and Dr. Oz, we haven't even talked about him yet. I mean, he is another icon of the celebration phase in that he's an extremely esteemed, uh, well-educated medical professional. I don't think people in the audience know that necessarily. He's <laughs> really at the top of his profession. And he decided he just wanted to be on TV a lot. So he started talking about magic coffee beans. I mean, doesn't that tell you something about our culture that somebody, a man of science like that, I mean, he's not the horse medicine guy. He's actually a guy who really knows how to be a surgeon and really knows how the body works. And he's selling us on magic coffee beans. So I think that it's not at all a shock that somebody like Dr. Oz is, is drawn to politics in this era because it's the same game. It's the game of let's throw out our expertise, let's hide our expertise, and let's lead with stupidity. Right. And I think, that, first of all, I want to parenthetically say, every once in a while, I think it came up in 2016, maybe it came up in 2020, there's this like, well, maybe Oprah should run for president. And I was thinking, no, Oprah gave us Dr. Oz. Oprah gave us a lot of these people. <laughs> Oprah created some of this kind of fake credential, you know, or or fake assertion of scientific ideas. Uh, and and with, with Oz... It is really interesting that, you know, he did used to know this stuff, his stuff, and then he started talking about a lot of quacky stuff that doesn't work. But it seems to me, and this is, I think, a current that runs through your book, too. The other thing he must have realized at a certain point is there are no negative consequences. I could tell people to drink some green, goopy stuff, you know, and it won't. It'll make their symptoms worse and it won't fix the thing that they're worried about. And nothing bad will happen to me as long as I do it on a television program a lot of people watch. Right. And well, and, and that, that absence no. of consequences yeah. is a problem all the way through your book, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, it depends on how you define consequences. I mean, people like Dr. Oz and Donald Trump have very quietly. And I mean, but when I say quietly, they've marshaled public relations firms to bury this. But they've had to pay out a lot of settlements. I mean, you know, Donald Trump did have to pay millions of dollars to the victims of Trump University. <laughs> I mean, he had, he took care of that somewhat quietly right before the inauguration. And Oz has had, I, I can't Google it um, for you right at the moment, but he's had some legal peril too as a result of his quackery. So they haven't been completely consequence free, but I agree with you, Colin, in that in terms of the political downdraft, Absolutely. There's no, in the celebration phase, there is no negative consequence to saying something that you just completely pulled out of thin air. I mean, the thing about bleach, how bleach is going to be good for your coronavirus. I actually love that press conference that he gave. It's really worth looking at again at some point for all of us because it was, as performance art, it was just exquisite. And it does underscore the problem of trying to be crazier than Donald Trump. Because he not only said the thing about how ingesting bleach would really knock out the COVID just like that, as well as our, you know, organs, our, our, our vital signs, but it would sure take care of the COVID. But I think because the bleach thing got so much play, another thing he said in that uh, press conference, I think has been overshadowed by it. Which is this is, going to be the UV light thing? The, yes, the, yeah, yeah. Thank you, I Colin. remember yes. that one, Andy. It, I remember his exact words where he, where he said, we've seen the light, that it, the, the virus dies in light. It just knocks it out just like that. So I was wondering, what if we put light inside the body 
which you can do. He said, which you can do. And I want to say, how? I mean, <laughs> swallow a flashlight? How do you do that, Donald Trump? It was absolutely bananas time. And again, sort of like the manufacturers of Listerine, there were consequences in the real world. I mean, the manufacturers of Lysol had to come out and say, no, do not drink our product. <laughs> and actually there were uh, a huge number of calls to poison control centers in various states because people had like tried to drink Formula 409 and God knows what else. So um, it is absolutely insane when the president of the United States is telling people to do things that your average four-year-old knows is not a good idea. Well, the other thing that was amazing about that press conference, Andy, was that he was just kind of trial ballooning this stuff. I mean, he's the president of the United States. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Typically, the president is sitting in the Oval Office gripping a podium or something and saying, you know, saying what he knows and here's what we're going to do and here's what we're not going to do. And he was he had these guys arrayed behind him. They were like business leaders and Deborah Burks and some other medical people. And he would like turn to them and go, well, what about this? You know, maybe we should try this. I'm thinking you're the president of the United States. You're briefing the country right now on a pandemic. And you're going, how about this thing? Maybe we should try that. <laughs> I think that's... I'm just just spitballing here, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, I think there are a couple of problems with him. Well, there are many problems with him, but let me just identify a couple. One is if you've been a CEO for a long time, you're used to being in rooms of people who just agree with everything you say because that and, and who laugh at your jokes. It's a very, very dangerous position. There was this whole movement around the time that Bush and Cheney got elected of like, let's elect CEOs and put CEOs in government. Actually, let's not do that because CEOs have not gotten the training that we need. CEOs are the least intellectually challenged people in the country. They are used to having people agree with them from the moment they wake up to the time they go to bed. So let's maybe, I mean, I'm not proposing a constitutional amendment that will ban CEOs, but I think just <laughs> as a general practice, let's not have them. The other thing about Trump is that he's a great TV performer and it drives the libs crazy when I say this, but... He is really, really talented mm -hmm. on TV. Oh, yeah. And he, he's really good at improv. I mean, I am a stand-up comedian, but I would not stand in front of a huge crowd in an arena with zero, zero material and just kind of riff for two hours the way he does. I mean, you can maybe say the material isn't that great that he comes up with. And you might say that, yeah, people start drifting out and <laughs> he doesn't really hold the attention of everybody in the audience for that long. But... It's still kind of impressive. Oh, yeah. You don't, you don't want a president of the United States who's riffing all the time. That's another really bad idea. You don't want a guy up there who's just kind of saying, okay, let me, um, yes, and let me, right. let, me, let me do a scene here. That's really like the worst idea. So, yeah, no CEOs and nobody who's taken an improv class. Right. Um, the uh, No, that's totally right. If we had more time, I, I, we, I can even prove this with clips. I can almost prove that Donald Trump, as a younger man, owned some Don Rickles records because um, <laughs> he has the Rickles beat. He did like one of the things that you're talking about. He's talking to one of the crowds when, at one point during the 26 campaign and he's talking about if Hillary gets elected and she starts appointing judges. He goes, when she's elected president and she starts appointing Supreme Court justices, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> 
Well, Second Amendment people, maybe there's something you can do about it. You know, and that's, of course, a pretty inflammatory and horrible thing to say. But it's the Rickles beat. You know, if you listen to Rickles, it's exactly the way he would sort of, you know, set something up and then punch it out with with another statement. So, yeah, I totally agree. This is a guy who had some comedy skills. Maybe not when we needed a comedian. All right. So we got to take a quick break, come back, and we'll finish up with Andy Borowitz. Time is going fast, which is usually a very good sign. gentleman is a dope, a man of many faults, a clumsy Joe who wouldn't know a rumba from a waltz. The gentleman is a dope and not my cup of tea. Why do I get him a dither? Support comes from- We're back. Thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today. Jennifer LaRue is the producer of this particular episode. Lily Tyson, our senior producer, has been hovering over and mentoring and doing all that Lily Tyson stuff. Uh, so thanks to all of them. We're with Andy Borowitz. His new book is Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber. So, Andy, one question you're going to have to answer over and over as you go around talking to people about this book is, I mean, you really do harp almost exclusively on the Republican Party, it, it, it certainly could be argued that Joe Biden, you know, almost sounds at times like a lot of the things that we we say about Republican politicians. He blurt things out, blurts things out. Sometimes he, they don't come out right. Sometimes they're manifestly untrue. Sometimes they're really true, but he probably shouldn't have said them. You know? I mean, saying that, you know, you really want to take Vladimir Putin out. He shouldn't be allowed to rule Russia anymore. That's True, maybe you shouldn't say it. So maybe talk a little bit about why why not include some of the democratic mistakes and exhibitions of ignorance as well. Well, in terms of Biden, let's first deal with him first. Biden, in a way, is proof of my thesis that we live in an anti-intellectual country. Because if you look at Joe Biden's competition in the 2020 race on the Democratic side, there were any number of flagrantly well-educated, intellectual, sort of wonky types. There was, including his vice president, Kamala Harris. My favorite in that field was Elizabeth Warren, as I've mentioned. But you also had um, Cory Booker. I mean, you go down the list, Pete Buttigieg. There were all these people who were very, very obviously super well-educated, had lots of plans, lots of very wonky ideas, And yet Joe Biden, who did not have a great campaign, he was likable and he was seen by a lot of people as the guy who could win and beat Trump. And Trump definitely thought he was because he, you know, if we recall his first impeachment, I mean, there's so many impeachments, it's hard to keep them them straight. But his first impeachment was all about trying to force Ukraine into defaming uh, Joe Biden because he was so worried about Biden. And he was justifiably worried because Biden beat him. So Biden, as a guy who's not really aggressively well um, informed and is kind of a loose cannon, really proves my point in that we would rather elect somebody like that than Elizabeth Warren. It doesn't reflect well on the Democrats or the country. I would have gotten into this a little bit more detail, but when I was writing the book, it was pretty new in the Biden administration. I didn't really I didn't have as many funny examples. I will say one thing about Joe Biden, that although he is not a wonky guy and he's not a guy like his his former ticket mate, Barack Obama, who 
clearly brilliant, one of our smartest politicians ever, but also had that magical other component, talent, which I keep on harping on, uh, that got him to where he is. Um, he, he wasn't as well informed by a long stretch as Barack Obama, but it's sort of shocking to me how effective he's been. I mean, if you look at things that have bedeviled the Congress for decades, like an infrastructure bill, nobody talks about that because it's not a sexy thing to talk about. But that's a huge achievement. Mm -hmm. The American Rescue Act that was that was voted in right after he got uh, in power. I mean, he's actually had, to me, who is not a Joe Biden fan, a surprisingly effective um presidency so far you could certainly you know you pick it apart and say all the things that he's done wrong right well but, if you if you want to know those things you have to listen to pod save america where they're really good at explaining those things biden and and his entire staff are not as good at explaining all the good things about him as other people are which is a little bit of a problem hey before we run out of time two other quick things i hope that we can get to one of them is you know is some of the problem is caused by our political system but some of the problem i think is caused by us and also by the media we support i mean joe rogan who you know kind of doesn't know anything and kind of starts from that premise has by far the most popular podcast in america number 2 isn't even close the view which is you know a started out as a bunch of women just chopping it up, you know, it's now become a pretty important engine of political discourse. Um, you know, there's a way in which the information system has degraded in a, that mat, in a way that matches the political degradation step for step. Yeah, or maybe it, it's actually helped create it. You know, that, you know, it's a question of what came first. Right. There's a great book that I refer to in my book called... Um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Great Neil book. Post. Yeah, great book. And he wrote it in the 80s, and he predicted all this, really. I mean, he, he wrote it while Reagan was president, so he certainly had um, ample evidence. But he was basically saying that the problem um, really started with the invention of the telegraph. <laughs> and his, his point was that the telegraph really emphasized kind of disjointed information that had no context, and that we would just news would come across the wire about like a celebrity wedding and then there'd be news of a flood and then there'd be news of a football game. And it led to this kind of disintegration of the way we see the world. And I think it's a very, very powerful thesis that has totally held up. And now we have new iterations of that because we have Twitter and we have the internet and we do have podcasts with people like Joe Rogan. And so information and misinformation lacks context now. You see something online and it's completely bogus and untrue, but it's it's coming out of the same appliance, your computer or your phone, that's telling you a lot of true things. So it's we've gone far, far worse than the, the telegraph key that Neil Postman was warning us all about, like that was the beginning of all this. It's gotten way worse. But um, I do think, you know, having written this book where I'm, you know, being so dire, even if I'm doing it in a funny way. I do think it's important to realize that history doesn't move in a straight line. And I've got actually some hopeful information that might have escaped the notice of some of your <laughs> listeners. I'm sure it didn't escape your notice. It did not. Your... And we've got about 
two minutes left here, unfortunately, for you to talk about putting the brakes on. I feel like you know Woody Allen at the end of his old stand-up routines he used to say, "I'd like to end on a with a positive message, but I don't have one." Would you take two negative messages? Uh, but I, I want you to end with a positive message. Yeah, you got little little about a minute and a half to do that. Ninety All right, seconds. Well, my positive message that I talk about in the book is that I believe that democracy has a braking system. And when our leaders are too dumb, too incompetent, we eventually, maybe too late, but we slam on the brakes. And case in point, a couple weeks ago in the great state of Alaska, Alaskan voters decided that national joke Sarah Palin was not going to be serving in Congress. So that to me is evidence that although our braking system of democracy is not in the greatest shape it's ever been, it's still there and it's up to us as individual citizens and voters to keep that braking system working. The end. <laughs> Beautifully done. Andy Barrow, it's, uh, it's so much fun to talk to you. I could talk for another couple hours about all this stuff. Uh, the book is Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for to everyone who helped out. Frat housing, keg tapping, shirt tucking, back slapping, haters of hippies like me. Tree hugging, peace loving, pot smoking, porn watching, lazy ass hippies like me. Tree hugging, love making, pro choice and gay wedding, widespread digging hippies like me. Skin color blinded. Conspiracy-minded protesters of corporate greed We who have nothing and most likely will till We all end up locked up in jails By conservative Christian, right-wing Republican, straight white American